Well, I hope you remember. I've been out the last couple of weeks, and I hope you remember where we are. We're still in the book of First Peter. Uh, we are in First uh, Peter chapter four. We're going to look at just a few verses today. First Peter chapter four. We're going to look at uh, verses three through seven. First Peter chapter four. We're going to look at verses three through seven. Uh, very apropos for this time in which we live. Uh, remember, we have been going through this book, and I've been going a little different route. I've been looking at the seven foundational imperatives that are in this book. We've gone through the first four, and uh, this will be imperative number five as we look at this study. Uh, very short. It's a short imperative, but it's a very applicable imperative to us today, and that imperative uh, is going to be found in verse 7. But let me read First Peter chapter 4, uh, verses uh, 3 through 7, as we look at this imperative number 5. First uh, Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 3. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lewdness, when we walked in our own lust and our drunkenness and our revelries and our drinking parties and our abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it's strange that you don't run with them in the same flood of dissipation. And they speak evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who were dead and that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. And here's the imperative that we're going to look at today, as well as some of the doctrine I just read. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. So as, as we were, are reminded that this book, First Peter, is written to comfort believers who are suffering persecution. Remember, it is written in 64, 65 AD. It is written under the reign of Nero, a crazy ruler of Rome, and he is a violent Christian hater. The Christians are being fed to lions at the Colosseum, they are being having tar put on them, and they are being lit up like torches throughout the all of Jerusalem. And that's why there's a great dispersion. That's why they fled Jerusalem. And so there is much suffering. Uh, Peter calls them fiery trials, and he talks about the persecution that they're suffering. This book is written to comfort them, and this book is going to be applicable to us as the days grow darker and as we as Christian people, we will begin to see some suffering in regards to our faith, I believe, with all my heart. If you're keeping up with uh, what's going on in the world, and I hope you are, uh, John MacArthur's church and several other churches in California were uh, command, commanded not to sing and commanded not to worship and and you know, uh, MacArthur and his, his elder board voted to, uh, 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 to meet anyway. And so they are under threat of thousand dollar fine every day. They have, uh, 
They have gathered to themselves lawyers. So this is going to be played out in court. This is just a sort of a foreshadow of uh, what's going on and within Christianity. Uh, churches in uh, China, the pastors are commanded not to preach the gospel. They're commanded to preach allegiance to uh, to Kim and to the Communist Party. And so we're seeing in all parts of the world, even in America, that persecution of Christians is becoming more and more rampant. So this text is not just something that was written uh, 2,000 years ago for uh, the people in Peter's day. It's going to be applicable to us. So just want to encourage you in that. And, and one of the ways in which Peter, through the Spirit, encourages his people uh, is that he tells them who they are in Christ. And as you'll remember, we've looked at a very myriad of ways in which the Scripture describes us as his people. Remember in chapter 2, uh, scripture tells us that we are chosen, that we are elect, that we're a royal priesthood, that we are a holy nation, we are a precious possession, we're a peculiar people. And so all of these uh, verses comfort us to know who we are in Christ. It talks about the great hope we have. It talks about the inheritance we're going to receive and how it is guaranteed, how it can't fade away, how it's reserved in heaven for us. It tells us about the trials we face and we're going to face, and it tells us that these trials are temporary. It tells us that our trials are, 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 uh, are purposeful, and it tells us that our trials are increasing our dependence, our faith, perseverance, and developing character and kindness and love for us. So Peter tells us of these persecutions. He tells us not to count them as strange, but he's just encouraging us. Now, as we look at this text today, as we look at the imperative in verse 7, everything has to be contextualized around this concept that we're suffering persecution, but we have great hope because of who we are in Christ. Now, as he's, he's, he, he, he starts imperative five, look what he says. He says, the end of all things at his hand, therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. Now, this phrase, the end of all things, has been uh, variously understood by Many scholars over the days, some scholars uh, believe, you remember I said that this book was written in 64, 65 A.D. Some scholars believe that Peter was referring to, as the Holy Spirit gave him uh, this intuition, uh, some scholars believe that Peter is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem and the uh, fleeing of the Jews from the armies of Titus. Now, we know from history that uh, Jerusalem was indeed uh, ransacked and that indeed the temple was destroyed five years before this book was written. So some scholars mistakenly limit this text to, per, to say that he's just talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. It's going to happen in five years, and he's trying to warn uh, these dispersed that have fled Jerusalem not to lose hope. Uh, this is prophesied. It's going to happen. 
Now, the problem with this, this is partly true, but this is not the uh, the the major context of this verse, uh, because if it was, it wouldn't have any application to us. All scripture is written to our benefit and is written for for those in when it was written and is written for us who live 2000 years later. So if Peter was just talking about the destruction of Jerusalem that would happen in five years, it wouldn't have a much application to us. But uh, so I want to look at uh, at this as 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 Jesus addresses it. Uh, look at Matthew 24. We're going to be in this uh, great chapter for a while. We're going to be in Luke 22 for a while. We're going to be in First and Second Thessalonians for a bit as we look at the end of all things. But uh, uh, some commentators believe this is what he's talking about. Uh, uh, he does to a to a specific point, but it's certainly not limited to that. It's applying. When Scripture talks about the end of all things, uh, it is talking about the period from the ascension of Christ into the second coming of Christ. And so when Peter says the end of all things is at hand, not only is he talking about Jerusalem's destruction, but he's talking about the days in which we live, and he's talking about the times until Jesus Christ returns a second time. So the end of all things is at hand is a is been two thousand years and counting, but I'll talk about is at hand in a minute. But let's look at uh, Matthew twenty four. Remember, this is before Jesus uh, uh, was crucified. Uh, the disciples and Jesus are standing at the temple. This is Matthew twenty four, and they're they're standing at the temple, and the disciples are showing him the magnificence of the temple and the gold. Uh, that's on the outside of the walls and just the beauty of the temple. And they said to him, uh, chapter 24, verse 1, that Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples showed him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say unto you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Well, Jesus was prophesying about the destruction of the temple that was going to happen. Uh, he's around 33 A.D. that would happen in approximately uh, 37 years. But uh, So he was telling the disciples this is what was going to happen, and this is what some commentators believe uh, that Peter was talking about. But uh, So the end of all things uh, refers to the period of time between the ascension and the second coming of Christ. So that's what we understand. For Scripture uh, to uh, to come along beside that thinking, just want to look at a few verses. Look at Peter one uh, twenty. As we talk about the incarnation of Christ, we looked at this. First Peter one twenty. This is evidences that the end of all things is going to have this uh, comprehensive point of history, not just the the uh, specific uh, d- destruction of the temple. Look at First Peter one twenty. Uh, speaking of Jesus, Jesus was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was revealed. He was incarnated. He became flesh in these last times for us. So this is just an application that the end of all things is applicable to Christ's coming, and it lasts until he returns. So his incarnation his revealing of himself is applicable to them at that time and certainly to us 
in the era in which we live. Just some other verses that are going to support this. Uh, this. Let's look at Acts chapter 2. This is Peter's first sermon uh, after the Holy Spirit has come at Pentecost. This is the, 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 the church era's beginning. Uh, look at Acts chapter 2, verse 17. This, this sermon is going to give us a clue about this phrase, end of all things, and this, and this thinking that it is a comprehensive amount of time from the ascension to the return of Christ. Chapter 2, Acts, verse 17. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Peter is interpreting Joel's prophecy, and he is telling the people that this is partly being fulfilled now, that the Holy Spirit is coming upon uh, Jews and is becoming upon uh, the Gentiles and is beginning the body of Christ. And then he says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Uh, your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. And on my men servants and my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they'll prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven and signs in the earth, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. And the sun will be turned into darkness and the moon and the blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And shall come to pass that whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So, so Peter is saying that the, that the Pentecost is a partial fulfillment of the scripture of Joel as he preaches, but he's also warning us of these last days and specifically the end when the sun and the moon and the stars are darkened and uh, men are judged at the tribulation hours. Just a, just some scripture that supports uh, the end of all things is at hand. Another verse that's, uh, that Paul uses is particularly helpful to us. Look at 1 Timothy uh, chapter 4. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4, as we look at this phrase, the end of all things is at hand. Uh, 1 Timothy 4 We've seen Peter speak of it. Now we're going to see Paul speak of it. We've seen Jesus speak of it, and then we'll see John speak of it. But 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit expressly says, then in the latter times, this phrase, end of all things, latter times, all synonymous terms, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, demons speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their consciences seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, commanding to abstain from foods. And so we read on and on this uh, phrase, and Paul supports it. If you look at 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, another scripture uh, that helps us understand the phrase, end of all things, uh, 2 Peter 3 verse 1. But this know that in the last days, another phrase that supports this uh, this uh, uh, phrase of end of all things, uh, perilous times will come. Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedience to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. So all of these verses, and if you look at First John, it's going to support 
uh, our thinking on this. First John chapter two, verse 18, one simple verse. Uh, no, it's, it's, uh, it's first John, uh, two, verse 18 through 23. Little children, it's the last hour. Another phrase for the end times. If you've heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now Antichrist have come, by which we know that it is the last hour, another phrase. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they'd been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were actually of us. And so we'll talk about that in a minute as we talk about the Antichrist a bit. But all of these phrases help us to understand the primary meaning of this that we are to be comforted to know that even when we are living in difficult days, we, who we are in Christ and the persecution is for his glory and for our good ultimately. Now I want to look at, uh, it says the, the end of all things. I want to look at characteristics of the end of all things. As we know in Peter's day, there's going to be some very similar characteristics. The characteristics in our day are going to be much more broad a broad spread and they're going to be much more uh, uh, vicious. They're going to be much more uh, difficult and they're going to be obvious that it's going to bring about uh, the end of all things. So let's look at some characteristics of uh, the end of all things, which would apply to us today, the church as we live in uh, 2020. Uh, I'm just going to look, look at a few of these. This isn't a comprehensive list. But I want you to think about this as we think about the imperative that we're to be serious and we're to pray. Why are we to be serious and why are we to pray? Because that is the methodology. That's the avenue God has ordained that we would be serious minded, that we would be focused on the days in which we live, that we would remember and we would be motivate, motivated by the eschatological uh, times in which we live. We need to come to the to the conclusion, church, the seriousness of the days, the imminence of of his coming and our responsibility to be salt and to be light, to have burdens for our lost family and friends and to live a life of obedience and faithfulness. So this whole imperative centers around our awareness of the time in which we live, and it centers around our serious, sober-mindedness, and it centers around our focus and our trust in God as we pray in his will and in his name according to his purposes. So I just hope that that encourages you today that God hears prayers and that the effectual prayer of righteous people avails much good. And I And I would... Uh, counsel all of us to focus on praying. <clears throat> the change that praying rots in us primarily, and then God uses our prayers to accomplish his purposes. So focus on this as we look at this text and we look at the characteristics of the ages in which we live. Just a few. I'll, I'm going to list 10 of them. Uh, I could list a uh, 100 of them. But the first thing I want to look at is... Uh, if you'll turn to uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.3. After we do 2 Peter, by God's grace, we're going to do 1 and 2 Thessalonians. Uh, we're going to be looking at some uh, 
a lot of the uh, Paul's prophecies to the end days, and uh, hopefully you'll be excited about that. Uh, those of you who are interested, I'm doing a, uh, a study in the Revelation. If you look under uh, uh, Sunday School Resources, uh, you will find they, those are recorded. I'm in process of doing those. And our home group, we're about to start the tribulation. So if you want to look at that, uh, uh, that'll sort of dovetail what we're going to be talking about today and for the next few weeks and months. Look at First Thessalonians 5. Uh, one of the characteristics of the end of this age, number one, uh, verse three. For they will say peace and safety, but sudden destruction comes upon them. So they are the pagan world, the lost, this era in which we lived, our progressive uh, political bent, uh, the world is crying out for peace and safety. Uh, they're going to say that peace is inevitable in our times. They're going to think that we can bring about peace. So one of the characteristics of this age is men are going to cry out for peace, but Scripture says that there's going to be sudden destruction. So uh, this is going to dovetail with uh, uh, many of you know the tribulation times will start when the peace treaty is signed between the Antichrist and the nation of Israel. That will start the tribulation era. The tribulation doesn't start at the rapture of the church, as we believe, but it starts during the, when the tribulation begins, when the peace treaty is signed. So this, they say peace and safety will be demonstrated in a peace treaty that will be signed between the Antichrist and the nation of Israel. A Multiple verses on that. So one of the signs in the and the uh, characteristics of this age is that the world is going to say peace is possible, but there will be sudden destruction. And that will be typified by the signing of the peace treaty between the Antichrist and the nation of Israel. If you want to look at that, uh, Daniel 9.27 and Isaiah 28.13, a couple of verses uh, in the Old Testament that are going to point to this uh, this thinking that there can be peace in our times, uh, but Scripture says it's going to turn into sudden destruction. Look at 927 from the book of Daniel. This is a famous uh, 70 weeks prophecy. Uh, we've done this in this class when we did the book of Daniel. Uh, it's been probably a year ago now, but just to, just to remind you, 927 Daniel. Uh, then he, the Antichrist, will confirm a covenant with many with the Jewish nation for one week. That's seven years, as we discussed, the heptad. Uh, but in the middle of the week, three and a half years into the peace treaty, uh, the Antichrist will bring an end to the sacrifice and the offering. And then he is going to cause the abomination of desolations halfway through the tribulation period. And then uh, all Hades will break loose within the nation of Israel and the world. Just one of the things, the world says peace. The Antichrist signs a peace treaty, but it will be broken and sudden destruction will occur. And then from God's point of view, the same scripture, look at Isaiah 28:13, As we see this uh, characteristics of the end of the age, we see peace, but God says it's going to be sudden destruction. Look at 28.13 of the book of Isaiah. Uh, actually, it's 28.15, excuse me. 
28:15 Isaiah. Because you've said we've made a covenant with death, that's God's viewpoint of this peace treaty. And with Shehol, we are in agreement. God says it's an agreement with hell itself. And when the overflowing scourge passes through, they say it will not come to us, for we've made lies our refuge, and under falsehood we have hidden ourselves. So God's view is that you've made this treaty with hell. You think that it's going to cause peace, but God says a scourge will come, and uh, this treaty will not last. It is not of me. And indeed, it will bring sudden destruction. So we see one of the characteristics of this age is false peace. Uh, any comments on that? Uh, you know, mute yourself and speak. Uh, that's going to be one of the characteristics of Peter's phrase, the end of all things is at hand. Uh, secondly, there's going to be a great falling away of many. Uh, turn with me, if you will, to Second Thessalonians. Uh, uh, polls show us, research shows us uh, that uh, people don't attend church anymore. The millennials specifically do not attend church. Many are falling away from the faith of their grandpas and their dads and their parents. And uh, religious uh, uh, feelings and attending of church and faithfulness is becoming more and more distance, distant in Europe. And in other parts of the world, and sadly, it is coming to America, too. And so we see less church attendance. We see less faithfulness. We see less obedience. We see a falling away. Look at 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3. A characteristic of the end of the age that there's going to be a falling away. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 2, 3. Paul's talking to the church at Thessalonica. They've apparently thought they've saw, uh, heard a letter from Paul that the end has already come and they're concerned that they're still around and they're panicking and Paul is addressing this false letter that uh, some have said come from him. But he says, don't panic. Uh, uh, don't worry. Uh, something has to happen first before Christ returns. And one of the things that happens is there's going to be a falling away. Look at Second uh, Thessalonians 2, 3, let no one deceive you by any means for that day. This is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ will not come unless the falling away comes first. So we see that there's going to be a run for the exits as far as true Christianity is concerned. Evil men are going to get worse. False prophets are going to rise uh, men are going to be deceived, love will grow cold, and the falling away is going to happen first. So we see one of the characteristics of the age that is occurring right now is there a falling away. This is the uh, the characteristic of the end-day church in which uh, John the Apostle writes. Uh, those of you in, the group, in our group know that we're talking about the Laodicean church. It's the church age from approximately 1900 to the present. And that church age is characterized by lukewarmness. And we discuss this in great detail. But uh, look at Revelation 3, chapter, uh, chapter 3. It's found in verse 14 through 21. This, 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 this uh, era, this characteristic of this era 
that is characterized by falling away, is characterized by lukewarmness within the church. Uh, look at verse, uh, uh, chapter three, Revelation, verse 17. The thinking of today's church is certainly this. Uh, you say, the church, you who claim to be believers, you say, I'm rich. You say that I'm wealthy and I don't need anything. And, and you don't know that you're wretched, poor, blind, and naked. And, and so the characteristic of the age in which we live and which many are falling away, that we as a body of Christ are ineffective. We're not salt. We're not light. We're not uh, medicinal. We don't offer a cold drink of water to folks. We don't offer a warmth of, of medicine and comfort, but we're lukewarm. We are good for nothing, and God says, I want to emit you out of my mouth. The word we get for, uh, uh, for, for medicine we use to make us vomit when we are, uh, have swallowed poison or something. So Christ says, the age in which I return is going to be characterized by lukewarmness, and certainly uh, who would deny that we live in that age? So Peter is saying, the end of all things is at hand. Uh, so we got a falling away. We've got those who cry out for peace. And then go back to Second Thessalonians. We see that the man of sin is going to be revealed. Uh, if you'll stay where we were in Second Thessalonians 2, verse 3, it says, The falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed. That is the Antichrist. So soon uh, he will come on the world scene and he will be revealed. Uh, whether or not we know who it is, uh, time will tell, but uh, he is soon to come on the scene, and uh, he will reveal who he really is. He will be uh, filled by Satan. He will be a counterfeit to Christ, and then he will be boastful. He will be proud. He will sign a peace treaty, but he will, uh, behind this this guise will be a man of war, a man of terror, a pompous man who will speak against Christ. He will torture Christ's people, the nation of Israel, and those who haven't been raptured to glory. He will torture them, mean to kill them. And so the Antichrist will be revealed, and that is another characteristic of this age. And you can find that in multiple places uh, in the Scripture uh, for time's sake. Uh, we won't go there. The next one we're going to see, I've already talked about it. Stay in Second Thessalonians chapter two. Look at verse 10. This is the, this is the characteristic. This is what the Antichrist is going to do. This is what we're seeing across Christendom today. Verse 10, Second Thessalonians 10. With all unrighteous deception among those who perish, they didn't receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. God's going to send strong delusion that they're going to believe the lie and they're going to be condemned who didn't believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. One of the characteristics of this age is deception. And uh, as we read in First John, many antichrists will come. Jesus said, many are going to say, I'm Christ. And he says, don't believe them, don't follow them. Uh, they're going to be deceptive. And so the characteristic of this age that Peter is talking about, the end of all things is at hand, is there's going to be much deception. Another thing we're going to see, uh, Jesus spoke of this in Matthew 24. Let's call these the birth pangs. 
we see these uh, happening at this very moment. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, this morning there was an earthquake that, that, that shook North and South Carolina, Virginia, uh, and Kentucky. Uh, just a rare event, uh, just another p- birth pang in these days in which we live. Earthquakes happen every day, but Jesus spoke of these birth pangs in Matthew 24, 6 through 8. <clears throat> Characteristics of this age. He said, chapter 24, verse 6, you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. Don't be troubled, my brothers, for all these things are going to come to pass, but the end is not yet. Nation against nation, ethnic group against ethnic group, kingdom against kingdom, famines, pestilences, earthquakes in various places. These are the birth pangs, the beginning of sorrows. So as Peter spoke of the end of all things, Jesus dovetailed that previously, and he said, if if, if someone asks you the days in which we live, we are living in the birth pangs of the tribulation. And as you know, if you've had uh, had a baby, you know these birth pangs occur more and more frequently, and they become more and more painful as your time comes. So uh, Jesus warned of these, and uh, uh, we know of famines. If you're looking at what's going on in the world, we're to be serious and pray. Uh, unprecedented swarms of locusts are covering the whole earth. Uh, swarms as large as large cities are decimating parts of India and Africa and even in the Middle East. Uh, these locust swarms are, are not unprecedented, but the size of them and the viciousness of them is unprecedented. Uh, it's going to lead to some famines. We see that. Uh, pestilences, we understand what that is. We know that COVID is a pestilence. Uh, do not be uh, deceived. It is allowed by God. It is sent by God, and it is purposed in God's good glory, and we trust that. So these things are going to become more and more prevalent. Uh, the bubonic plague is coming back. Several have died in China. Uh, we know about the Black Death. We know about the Spanish flu. We know about HIV. We know about the swine flu. All of these are the pestilences that are going to become more and more prolific, and they're going to become more and more pronounced, and they're going to become more and more frequent. So, And then the earthquakes have already uh, identified that for the, even this morning. So signs in the times in which we live, be aware of these, so be seriousness, be serious and be faithful. Uh, uh, look at this while you're in Matthew 24, 12. Uh, can anybody identify with this one? 24, 12. Matthew. Because lawlessness will abound. Do I need to say anything else? 64 days in a row of rioting in Portland. We've seen it in Seattle. We've seen it in Minneapolis. We've seen it in New York City, Chicago. We've seen the riots. We've seen the lawlessness. These are precursors. These are birth pangs to the end of all things is at hand. God allows it. God sends it as judgment on the world for rebellion against him. And uh, we see that. Look at what else Jesus says right after that in verse 12. The love of many is going to grow cold. Do I need to explain that to anybody? God's, uh, there is frustration, there is hate, 
There is coldness. There is the butchery of babies, 70 million babies. And love is cold. Men are growing waxing cold. Men are hit in the streets. Uh, vileness of all things are occurring in this world. So we see that these are characteristics. Uh, there's going to be signs in the heavens, Luke 21, 25. Uh, this is the same a prophecy of Christ just written from a different viewpoint with different specifics. Look at Luke 21, 25. There will be signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars, and on the earth the stress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring. Uh, look at verse 26, another one. Men's hearts will fail them for fear. We see that. Men's hearts fail them from fear and the expectations of those things which are coming. I've never seen such fear in my life, and I know you guys could uh, certainly go along with that and understand that. Men are afraid. They're afraid for their lives, for their jobs, for their livelihood, for everything men are afraid. And we are called not to have this spirit of fear, but we're to have love, we're to love. And we are to be anxious over nothing but trust the Lord. So all of these are signs. Uh, and then lastly, uh, I could go on and on, but the sun will be darkened. It will not give its light. Stars will fall from the sky. And uh, prayerfully, and uh, we believe we will not be here to see all that happen. That happens at the end of the tribulation. But uh, those are some events, and those are the days in which we live. When Scripture says it's at hand, we think that odd. But we have to understand when Peter says that the end of all things is at hand, we need to understand that this is written from God's point of view. Uh, it's not written from man's point of view. Man would not say the last 2,000 years that it's at hand. But God does because God is infinite and God is eternal and a day with the Lord is as a thousand years. So to him, time uh, uh, isn't like it is with us. And so he says the time is at hand so that we would have an imminent awareness, that we would live our lives as if we could be called up to meet the Lord in the air today. And he wants us to live a life of faithfulness and God-centered living in obedience to him and he wants us to have this feeling of imminency in our lives because he could come at any moment. So when he says it's at hand, he means it's from his point of view. He means that he wants us to be faithful and live like it could happen today. And then lastly, he wants us to understand that the victory is already won. I talked to so many people and I've heard some say, uh, that, uh, you know, we're in a, Jesus and the devil are in a life struggle and it's just sort of, uh, it's really unknowable who's going to win this race. These are so-called Christian people. And I just want to say, brother, God is sovereign. The devil is a finite, limited, created being and he's already defeated. Christ is seated and he is victorious. And as Terry always says, only thing we're waiting for is the cleanup. So when he says the end is at all is at hand, we understand that Christ has already won. It is finished. 
the work is accomplished. His people will be saved. He will come again. He is triumphant. Uh, but to us, of course, as finite creatures, it's been 2,000 years. And, uh, and so we don't understand the phrase is at hand, but God does. And to him, it's already occurred and the end has already been, uh, given. So understand that. So what is the, uh, you know, so we look at this. So my, my prayer for me, my prayer for you is that you would be sober minded. It would be that you live a life of readiness, that you have your, Lamps burning, metaphorically speaking, that the Spirit is within you. You are filled with the Spirit. You are doing the work that you've been called to do, and you are being faithful, and you're ready to hear him say, well done. Uh, Don't be like the unprepared virgins who didn't have oil in their lamps. Don't be like the uh, servants who thought that Christ was going to delay his coming, and they weren't prepared in the way they lived. But we are to be serious-minded, and we are to pray because prayer changes us. And God uses prayer in a way only known to him to positively affect the lives of people within our concentric circle. So pray without ceasing. Pray effectually. Pray consistently. And so we're living in these days Don't give hope, but trust. Now, the teaching behind this is very simple, and it's very short. And the reason we are able to pray and the reason we our prayers are effectual is because what Christ has already done for us. Look at verse 3. Look at verse 3 as we sum this up in the time that we have. We've spent enough of our lifetime living in sin. But God, by his goodness and his mercy, has brought us to repentance. We have been saved from this lifestyle of the past. He uses this analogy to describe this pagan Gentile world in which these folks that Peter is writing to used to live. They were heavily influenced by Rome. They were influenced by the pagan revelry. They were personally accountable, and they were societally accountable. And they did all of these pagan rituals under the name of religion. And Paul is saying, you used to do this, but he's saying, now you're dead to this. You're new creations in Christ. The old is passing away And everything is becoming new. So the theology is behind the praying and being serious because of the end days is because of the work of repentance in our lives. That God in his mercy and in his grace has changed us. And we're no longer the way we used to be. And that is passing away. We've been forgiven. We've been reconciled to God. So the theology is is we've been saved from it. First Thessalonians 1 9 says we've been saved from the past. We've been saving, we've been saved to obedience and ceasing from sin. That's why we were saved to take us from where we were to put us to where we are now. So that's the doctrine. And what is the reaction 
Can any of you identify with this, the reaction of those that we used to do this with? Can you look back on your life and can you identify and can you agree with this? This is autobiographical to me. This is the way we used to live our life. Look what, look in verse four. They, those people that you used to sin with in your lifestyle before Christ, look at their reaction to your repentance and to God's change in your life. They think it's strange that you don't continue to run with them in the same, same flood of dissipation. And what do they do? They speak evil of you. You ever had an old buddy speak evil of you? The way you used to live your life and they think it's strange. They think you're a hypocrite. They think they don't understand you. They think you're just a, a putting on a show. Uh, just so relevant God's word. They think it's strange that you don't live like you used to live. And then they're going to call you a hypocrite and, and, uh, they're going to talk poorly of you. And so we see the reaction of our old friends and acquaintances to the work of Christ in our lives. And that's the doctrine behind the teaching. And then lastly, we see the effect of the gospel. Verse six, the gospel was preached to those who are dead that they may be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. This simply means a lot of people have taken this verse and tried to do gymnastics with it and make it more difficult than it is. They say that verse, those who are dead, that's referring back to the, the preaching to the prisons in spirit, which we spent enormous amount of time with, simply means uh, this, is, this is referring to Christians that have had the gospel preached to them by people, Peter maybe, but other apostles and others who've been saved, simply means the gospel was preached to them. They've died, okay? But they, and then that phrase that they may be judged according to men in the flesh simply means that although we are saved and although the gospel changes us, we still die. It is a consequence of sin, and we as Christians die. And uh, so Peter is encouraging the church that those fellow believers who heard the gospel, they die. But don't be discouraged by that because they're going to live. And because of Christ, just because they die, they will be raised, and they have a glorious hope, and they have this... uh inheritance that's promised in chapter one, remember? So Peter is saying they've heard the gospel and they've heard the gospel. They've responded. They've been saved. They die. But then it says, but they live according to God in the spirit. So uh, uh, Christians have a hope. Uh, they will be resurrected. And that is the doctrine behind this imperative. Pray. Be serious. Be watchful in your prayers. Any comments about this? I tried to sum this up. Uh, uh, just to want you guys to be aware of the end of the days in which we live. Uh, see the characteristics of it, but not for, to be curious and not to have knowledge that other people don't have, but so that you may be prayerful, that you may trust the Lord, that you may be faithful and that you may endure and you may finish the race and fight the good fight 
and look to the blessed hope and appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Any comments or questions?